He's right here in front of me, and I can honestly tell him that I'm gonna knock him spark out. Leaping right hand by the Prince. Ooh. And up hard left. And Kelly's down for the third time. So I'm delighted to be joined in studio by some heavyweight boxing royalty. Jerry Cooney, thanks for coming in. Hey, it's great to be with you. I, I love it here. I haven't been here in about 19 years. Past two years, grown quite a lot since I was here before. And, and I've been there and I've traveled around a bunch with uh, the police department, New York City Police Department boxing teams in the past. So I'm really glad to be back. I'm having a great time. I was over in London and... And we got to see uh, Dillian White, and uh, I was trying to get a hold of Joshua, and tons of great interviews. Man, you guys are great. I'm so glad to be here with you today. And you're a little too handsome for me, bro. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Um, so, Jerry, you're here in this part of the world as part of Scott Murray's famous boxing gala series. Great, man. Have you had a good time over the weekend? Uh, yeah, uh, it's been perfect. I've got, we've got to a lot of gyms, went to his great restaurant, and we had a great dinner there, and met all the old-time fighters came, and you know, the great thing about you know boxing is that you always have this camaraderie with those guys. Even though you won't in there with them, they know the the, the, the falls, the pitfalls, the, the sorrows, the hardness. The, it's boxing's hard. It's a difficult sport, and you go through a lot of changes, and it's a, it's a hard game, and you're on the road all the time. And so you kind of have that smile about these guys because they've been through it, and uh, I loved it. I had such a, I'm having such a great time. Uh, we've lots to get into a uh, great story you have, but um, we'd start with the name, Jerry Cooney. It doesn't come much more Irish than that. There you go. Can you tell us a little bit about those Irish links? Where does the heritage go back? Uh, well, you know, my, my, uh, my family's from, uh, from Mayo, Kiltima, and uh, my, f my, my father also had, came from Canadian descent, and uh, uh, the Carols, and uh, it goes back a long way, and, uh, and I always, you know, I was a Grand Marshal in the New York City uh, St. Patty's Day Parade was great. I've got to many of them. Yeah. Not being a Grand Marshal, but one of them I did. And uh, listen, it's, uh, I feel home. I feel like I'm home. I feel comfortable. I'm enjoying myself completely, meeting a lot of great people, and that's what it's about for me. And have you had a chance to visit here often over the years? No, you know, I, I've, I've been here a couple of times. I've been in, in, in Ireland a few times, but, you know, not a lot. And I got a young family. I have uh, my, my children now. My daughter's 18. My son is 21. I have a son that's 30. So now I'm going to be able to start traveling. I was just telling my wife, but we got to get here. This is beautiful here. I'm having such a great time. There was a famous picture in 1989 of you and Charles Hall. You would have been the Prime Minister of Ireland yes. at the time. So that would have been at the height of your fame. Career. Your profile would have been high. So would you have been recognized much when you came over here? You know, I'm going to tell you a funny story. It was 12 o'clock midnight. We just got off the plane and we're driving to come to where we were staying. And it was a, there was a roadblock. I guess the police were pulling people over to see if they were drinking. And I didn't even 
you know, we didn't even park, get the cars and stopped. And the officer said, Jerry Cooney, how are you? Nice to see you, keep going. I mean, that was how great it was. I met, I met Floyd Patterson here when his wife was uh, an Irish oh, from Ireland. Yeah. Um, I met the prime minister. I mean, listen, I, I really have been blessed through my years to all the people, great people I met and the fun times I had and experiences that I got to share with other people. Mm. And American boxing throughout the century really has been synonymous with that Irish community going back to like John L. Sullivan, right. Corbett. And you obviously wore the shamrock on your shorts and you played into the Irish bit a lot. Was that something that was important to you, representing the fighting Irish, as it were? Yeah, well, I'm an Irishman. I'm an Irishman. That's where I came from, from, uh, from Irish descent. And uh, I was proud about it. And I enjoyed it. And, I, and the fans loved it. And I was proud. I'm proud to be Irish. I'm proud. I'm an Irish-American. I, I want to get an Irish passport. Yeah. How can I get the Irish passport? We'll have to look into that, all right. Yeah. And in terms of your roots, brought up in Long Island, the third in the family of six, was it? Yes. Was it an Irish Catholic sort of upbringing? Irish Catholic upbringing. My father did a lot of drinking. We went to church every Sunday, no matter what. And uh, you know, it was a tough, a tough upbringing. You know, a lot of, you know, um, being expressed feelings is kind of hard for the Irish, my Irish family. And uh, and so it was a struggle. And that's how I became a prize fighter. I was angry what was going on in my house and then I went to the gym to follow my brother who left the house when he was 15 and I started hitting the heavy bag and it felt good I felt good and then I boxed a kid who knocked me around that day and I threw the gloves off and went home and said I'm not doing this no more but I went downstairs and I hit the heavy bag expecting the guy was going to come on me and three days later I went back to the gym I asked if I could box that kid again at 15 and a half and he go? couldn't do that to me anymore and then, you know, six months later, I went and won the New York State Golden Glove Championships in Madison Square Garden, which is a very powerful uh, tournament, one of the largest in the United States. And, uh, and so it fed me. It, you know, I got to express my anger. And they put my, I remember I used to go to, to the newspaper stand the day after the fight, and my picture would be on the back page of the Daily News. So it made me somebody, finally. Because mm -hmm. in my house, I, I used to hide. Uh, I felt, uh, you know... Out of sight, out of mind. I couldn't get hurt, and uh, it was confusing. And uh, and boxing fed me, and that's how I decided. My I grew up. My, my buddies were going away to college. I wasn't going to college, so boxing was my next best deal, mm. and I ran with it. And Huntington, in its way, was kind of suburban area, so maybe not quite like the inner city hubs that would have been associated with boxing at that time. And we had Ray Mancini in uh, last year, and he was. Make, making the similar point that he came from a middle-class family, maybe not those inner-city hubs, as I said. But you see Ray in the ring, and he, he's as if he's fighting like his life depends on it. Right. What was your motivation to get in the ring? Well, you know, listen, I wanted to, I wanted to prove my father wrong. My father told me I wasn't going to make it. I'm not good enough. And I love the feeling of going in, and there's a certain short period in your life where you can create the shots when you're boxing a guy, and you can make the guy open to the shot that you want to hit him with, and there's nothing like a better, better feeling. You smile to yourself, and I won a bunch of championships. Uh, I got invited to, the, uh, to be on the, the finals of the Olympic trials. I didn't go, and I regret that deeply today because... Uh, Why did you not go? I didn't go because my father was sick, but I didn't like my father. I was angry at my father, and... Uh, the other part was that I didn't think I could make it. I wasn't good enough. All those messages we get as kids growing up, it kind of stuck with me. And it's one of the biggest regrets of my life. I didn't take that shot. And I tell kids today, you gotta jump in the water. You gotta, you wanna swim? You gotta jump in the water and you gotta, you know, push yourself. 
forward. And that's was something that I really regretted back then. And I probably couldn't have made it to the to the Olympics. Who knows? But I didn't take the, I didn't have the experience. And that life is about taking those experiences as far as you can go. Yeah. And were you meeting much, much pushback outside of your home? I know Walt Whitman is where you went to school. Yeah. That would have been a football, wrestling sort of school. Would, boxing wouldn't have been a done thing necessarily, would it? It was not. And, you know, a, a funny story uh, uh, that I had a guy who was a bully, school teacher, football coach. And um, one day in gym, he wanted to box me in front of the class. It was his biggest mistake. <laughs> and uh, they never happened again after that. But that's... Always experience when you're with a bully, when, when you're around bullies, if you stand up to them, nobody ever bullies you again. That was my experience. And, and uh, you know, just doing the right thing. That's my, that's my thing is to help, is help the smaller person, you know, make his life a little easier, and, uh, and keep moving forward. And you mentioned your father a couple of times. He was a merchant marine during the wartime, an iron maker, so he would have been responsible for a lot of the construction around New York, so kind of an old-school guy, but a complicated character, and it's something you've detailed in your book. Can you just tell us a little bit about what kind of character your father was? Listen, I, I know he loved us in his own strange way, and uh, when he grew up in a rough household, he didn't understand it, but then how do you grow up and do the same thing to your kids? And, you know, it was explained to me later on in life. I, this old man told me one day that no matter what he did to he gave me the ability to become number one in the world. And so the anger kind of went away, and he did the best he could. And he was uh, controlled us. He, you know, he was. We didn't get to go. I remember we didn't get to go out and play with kids and that kind of thing. He wanted us around the house all the time. I guess I don't know what that was all about. But listen, I made peace with my father. I had a. He made me a good man. I'm a great man today. I enjoy my life. I love it. I'm helping people out all the time. And uh, and uh, so listen, you know, we we have good days and bad days. And uh, you learn to turn the page on it to move on with your life or else we stay stuck. Yeah. And so I've, I've been able to do that. It's been great. And he, he boxed in the military, so he had that hard-nosed ethic, and he was probably trying to relay that to you and your siblings, but like he built a ring in the back garden. Is that right? So, so when my older brother, Tom, who was a great fighter in his own right, um, started boxing, then my father really picked up on it. And so I'm living at home with my father and my mother, and... He built a ring in the back here because now he wants to box me. He wants to box now. And it made me very angry. And my mother would keep time from the window, from the kitchen window, and he'd fight me. And I could never hit him. I couldn't hit him. I don't want to fear. I didn't want to hurt him. But when I hit him, he'd bruise. And, uh, and so then later on in life, I thought myself, I wish I would have given him a couple of whacks. And then I met somebody who did give their father a couple of whacks, and he felt terrible about it. So I'm glad it turned out the way it did. Yeah, and he was tough in boxing terms, but he was tough around the clock as well, it seemed. Was, it, was he physical, physical with you and your, your mother and your siblings as well? He was, and uh, that's um, it's a, a, a tough story to tell. Uh, it was painful, it was frightening. Uh, if it rained out, uh, that meant my father wouldn't have worked. He'd come home, and then we'd have to come home from school, he'd be there. And that was uh, tough. I mean, you know, we, I knew he loved us, but he had a hard way of, uh, he was a hard man. And uh, he worked hard. Six kids. He worked a steel construction in, you know, in Manhattan and wherever he could work. And it was hard. Money was tough back in those days. And I'm sure he was frustrated and angry at some of the mistakes he made in his life. And I think that kind of bled over into our lives. And he wanted to make us better. And he didn't know how to go about expressing that to us. And uh, unfortunately, what wound up happening is most of us left the house. And... Uh, 
And then uh, he got sick, and then it was uh, a sad story. And you mentioned in your book that you used to hide in the basement. Was that, was that out of fear, or was that out of sight, out of mind, as you said? Sort well, of? that's both. I mean, you know, if, if he couldn't see me, he couldn't hurt me. And uh, I don't know. I, it, it's a very confusing, complex, what happens to people like that, and uh, the control or keep us, he kept us separated, kind of like we all had our own hiding places. Yeah. So we couldn't gang up on him. Uh, but listen, I, I forgave him. I, you know, I, I loved him for all he gave me. Uh, I worked in steel construction with him. Uh, uh, I used to ride the motorcycle with him. So we've done a lot of good things. So you think there was love in that relationship? Yeah. yeah. I mean, listen, uh, my mother and my father, they loved this. And it was hard times back in, those, in the 60s and 70s. It was just hard. He had to work hard every day to make money, to pay the bills, and to keep us fed and clothed, and it was just a tough time. Mm. That my children don't see today. I got three great children, and you know, 99% of the world is putting them down. I gotta pick them up, I gotta keep them picked up, and that's, from those experiences I went through, I know what I don't wanna do. Yeah, and for better or for worse, he was one of the main reasons you got involved in boxing. That's right. When he passed away, did that affect your relationship with the sport at all? Well, I broke away from the sport because I had a great school teacher, Miss Gorman, her name was, and she told me, you know, Jerry, for at least a year, you're going to have to stay close to your family. Your mother's going to need you. And I kind of broke away and stayed close to the family. And then I was around the time when all the guys were going away to college, and I started thinking, well, hey, maybe I'll be a professional fighter. And, uh, and I wanted to uh, go. I mean, I had nobody to help me find a manager, find how to go about it, but slowly but surely... I met this guy and I learned from him and I met this another guy and before you know it, I met the guy who, who um, managed Howard Davis. He was the guy who won the gold medal in 76. Yeah. He signed a two and a half million dollar contract with CBS. I figured this is great. I can travel the country with him and, and be showcased on the show and that's exactly what I did. Mm. And you were a really good amateur as well, 55 wins from 58 and Golden Gloves Championship. There must have been great times, international tournaments as well. You must have enjoyed your time as an amateur. Listen, I, you know, I think about St. Patty's Day. They had signs, loonies for Cooney. <laughs> it was the greatest. And yeah, I uh, had all knockouts on my, my international bouts. I, they told me to stay in shape when I came back from Europe and that the Russians were coming, I got the third ranked Russian. I didn't, I was drinking with my buddies. And six days before the fight, they told me, hey, you better get in shape. The fight's on, so I ran for six days. I got in the ring that night, the bell rang, I hit him on the chin, knocked him out, thank God. <laughs> or he'd have killed me, that guy, because I wasn't in the greatest shape at that time, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's how I got the, uh, the berth to go to the tri Olympic uh, finals. And, uh, and so I, I regret that moment, uh, but uh, listen. I had a great career, a lot of great wins, met everybody. I once went to a party in Las Vegas. Everybody I ever wanted to meet in my whole life was there. Really? From Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, just everybody. It was the uh, greatest feeling in the world. Wow. And obviously a lot of people were after your signature when you, when you turned pro and you ended up going with Mike Jones and Dennis Rappaport who were kind of building a bit of a reputation. They call themselves the Goldust Twins and other people they call, call them, them the Wacko Wacko Brothers. Um, <laughs> What was their sales pitch to you at the time? Do you remember what it was? Well, I think what wasn't really mattered what the sale pitch was to me was I, I knew that they had Howard Davis, so they were committed okay. to the game. And that commitment is what I really wanted. So I wasn't making millions of dollars. I was making a couple hundred dollars a week to train, to have an apartment. And the, the main thing I wanted to do is I wanted to be in a camp with a guy like Howard Davis who was going to be showcased, and I would be able to be on that card. 
And did you learn much from Howard Davis? Would you have interacted much with him? Well, you know, yeah, we, he was a great guy. I mean, he was a different fighter than me. I, you know, my, 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 my fighting style was I wanted to get to your body. I had to get inside. Like, I see the guys today fighting, like Tyson Fury, who I love the guy. He's a great guy, a good fighter. But if I'm fighting Tyson Fury, it's not like maybe I'm going to get to his body or I think in this round I'm going to try and get there. My job is get to his body so I can get him to drop his hand so I can hit him on the chin. Yeah. They don't do that today. They stay outside and box them. So that's kind of been lost a little bit. But of late, there's some guys coming back, working the body. I think that's really important. And uh, and sometime, I hope somewhere down this road soon, I'll be able to start training some guys because I was gifted with... Uh, a lot of great talent from a trainer by the name of Victor Valley, and I also work with Gil Clancy, and so I have a lot of, a lot of things to give to somebody. If they have the ability to learn, I would love to be involved that way too. And Victor Valley, you mentioned a Puerto Rican guy, and you've got your Irish blood and a lot of, a lot, oh, yeah. of a lot of fiery temper, I presume. But like, as much as a good mentor he was in the ring, I presume he was equally as good a mentor outside the ring for you. He was a great mentor outside the ring. The only thing is he loved to sing to me. And I liked it once in a while, but no, he was a great guy. He was a father figure to me, Yeah. but he did have a hot blood. We lived together almost. We were like, um, he was giving me everything he knew. He was trying to develop me, and he, he loved me. I mean, how can you, you, you really finally feel loved in your life? I mean, he was like my man, and, uh, and I was able to pick up a lot of things. As a matter of fact, most things I picked up, after I finished fighting, I, life slowed down, I'm able to pick up more things now that I see in boxing that I learned from him. Mm. And you're By the way, I want to tell you something. Go for you it. did some great job. Oh, well, very interesting story. Some. Very interesting story. Oh, thank story. you. It's very nice of you to say. And your pro debut, uh, February 77, against Billy Jackson, early knockout, which would become the norm for you. What were your memories of that? Was it a big difference from the amateurs, the smaller gloves, and being able to get in there? And well, I mean, it was scary. I mean, listen, I'm finally making a living at this. They're going to pay me. I think I made $400 that night, so it wasn't a big payday, <laughs> but I was in great shape, and it was at Sunnyside Gardens, which is a big arena that they put on all the great fights from back in the day. And as a matter of fact, that was the last night that Sunnyside Gardens put on a fight. Okay. And I was fighting Big Bill Jackson, and, uh, you know, I always fought the same way. When the bell rang, I was going to let you taste my power let you know I was there, and I caught him with a shot and, uh, and knocked him out of there pretty quickly. So it was what age were you when you realized you had this freaky power? That you, you know, were I gotta tell you something, can I tell you the truth? Maybe the biggest puncher ever? About three years ago. Oh really? Uh, three years ago. I mean, did you ever hit the machine? The, the no, 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 I never did. But you know, I, I never really, you know, everyone always tells me I, I broke a lot of ribs in my life, I broke all the people's ribs. I never, when you're him, like I think what I found out is that professional athletes are just stronger than the normal person. They have this ability to stand up, to, to pick themselves out of themselves and be stronger. And, and I've kindly just kind of had to accept the fact that I did break about a million ribs, and so I gotta be pretty strong. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it's not just the, the power, but it's the timing, and it's the setting the punch up and finding the opening, which is really, I, I talked about this yesterday, is that there's a t period in your life where you feel world, world class. And that's where you can create the opening. I'll watch the guy, I'll watch the guy. The next time I get in that place, I land the shot. And I watch his expression, and you see him start to break down. That's the greatest feeling in the world. And you have to really take care of yourself to keep that for a long period of time. And, and while you're in that zone, there's no place I'd rather be. And without jumping ahead too far, 
you're in that world-class window, and when you get later in your career, can you still see those openings, but you're just not able to pull the trigger? Um, I, I think you... Uh, I mean, I'm obviously, it, it slows down a little bit, but I, I'm listening. I was this guy. I was a body puncher. I was going to find the body. The body's the biggest part of the, on the, yeah. the structure. So I was going to, if I caught the elbow, I caught the bicep, I was going to hurt you. And then you watch from there. Where's the opening then? You start to see them dropping their hands. We're going to box later on, right? I'm going to show Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you find the openings. Uh, and it goes away. And that's, uh, you don't really realize why you're in the game. But afterwards, looking back, because we as fighters, I remember every second of every fight. Okay. And uh, you can remember looking back what that was about and when it started to change and it was more difficult. And, you know, the, the thing about boxing for me was that in the amateurs, you fight the next best guy. Then you fight the next best guy. In boxing, they make you wait for years Sometimes. I mean, it took me two and a half years to get to fight with Michael Spinks. They called me the night that he beat Holmes. They said, do you want to fight him? I said, do I want to fight him? I'm going away to camp tomorrow. I went to camp. The fight didn't take place for two and a half years. And during that time, I started to drink and party, not pay attention and not focus. And the, the fight showed. Because uh, they play games with you. Mm. They, they want to, you know... It's, it's, it was a frustrating period of time. You were popular in your hometown, but then it was wins over was it Ron Lyle, and that was kind of the one that kind of put you on the map, got the ball rolling. Kenny Jim, Norton was a big one. Jimmy Young as well. Jimmy Young was, 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 Jimmy was a big fight for me. Would have mixed it with Muhammad Ali and gave him a, right. a lot of trouble. So having been known locally, you became a sort of a nationwide sensation almost. What was that feeling like, that building profile? <clears throat> I want to tell you. I always identify with the sanitation workers, with the construction workers, with the painters, because that's who I was. And they all identify with me. And I had the same camaraderie with those guys. I spent the time with them. I loved to hang out with them. And that was my life. So I, I, I started to attract that, that, that um, group of people, which was everybody. Mm. And uh, we had a great time. We, we sat and talked, laughed, joked. And that was my experience. So, you know, without me knowing that, that was what was my following. And, and, uh, and I, I was a people person. I identified with all the struggles those people had. I was in those struggles. And uh, I wanted to ease the pain in those people that I never found someone to ease my pain. I had to work through it myself. But through that process of learning that, I'm able to sit down and tell those people, maybe you could try this. Maybe you can go over here. And, uh, and that's always been my whole life. I've been doing that since I'm a young kid, 15, 16 years old. I remember the first time I had a fight, I was in the seventh grade, and there was this big guy bigger than me, he was a bully, and uh, he was starting with me. You know, I thought, my father's going to kill me. <laughs> he didn't bother me, though, you know, it's like I took care of the bully. Yeah. And that's what I always liked to do all my life, is I hated the bullies that were taking advantage of the less powerful people and I think that that was something that I kind of exuded about myself and I think that was uh, I mean I don't know I mean I, listen I love everybody you know what I mean I, and so I really uh, took that with me and ran with it and it's been a great run still yeah 
We have to just turn 39. I just turned. <laughs> we have to talk about your left hook, which um, oh. world famous, best since Joe Lewis at the time. And what really brought it to the fore was the fact that you were southpaw but fighting in the orthodox stance. So Andy Lee, who we have in here regularly, was the opposite. So he was right-handed but fought as a southpaw. That just means you can get your best hand into action more regularly. Well, you know, a uh, funny thing for me was when I first started, the coach didn't know I was left-handed. <laughs> were you so trying I to keep it a secret? No, no, no. I didn't know either. I just, okay, you know, yeah. this is my dominant hand, so I, always, I went to the gym f with my left hand. No one said anything. And as it turned out, it was a gift for me, because every time I throw 100 jabs, I'll throw 20 right hands. So every time I hit you with a jab, you got shook up. In fact, Larry Holmes didn't know when I fought him that I was okay. left-handed. And so my left hand, I could do everything. With that. When I was a kid, I saw my brother in a, in, a, in a street fight, and I saw him hit the guy with a left hook to the body and knocked the wind out of him. And it was the most devastating thing I ever saw in my life. And the police would come, I'd say, come on, I had to get my brother out of there. And that's how I became a body puncher. And I loved my left hook, I loved, it's also from the blind spot. When you throw a left hook, the person really can't see it coming. You'll see it later on when we box. <laughs> And it was, you won't see it, you'll think you'll see exactly. it. Exactly. It was on full display against Kenny Norton, yeah. who had, uh, also had brilliant fights with uh, Muhammad Ali. That was a starkly quick knockout, the quickest ever at Madison Square Garden. And you see Kenny Norton after the fight, it's as if he's seen a ghost. Yeah. Like, athletically, was that your best performance? Well, you know, I'm going to tell you something. In, in my losing to Larry Holmes, uh, and with the experience I had going in, in words, I was knocking everybody out, so I didn't get that much experience. I learned so much from him that night, even in losing. Yeah. But in fighting Kenny Norton, I, I always felt that, uh, I, first of all, I thought he was going to kill me that night. You know, I mean, that, that's what fighters do. Broke Muhammad Ali's jaw. Right. And so I went into that fight, and I'm thinking, well, I know i got to touch him. I'm going to touch him so he knows what I have. And I hit him with a right hand to the body, and he kind of buckled a little bit. So I worked him into the corner and I spun him in the corner. And once I caught up with his weaving, it was all over. It was like, you know, it was uh, devastating. And I, every time I came this way, I looked to uh, Tony Perez, like, you're going to stop it? He didn't say nothing. And it felt pretty good. So I came back the other way. And in all the papers, it said four punches from death. And that was the greatest. I could have beat anybody in the world that night. That's the kind of shape I was in. And that night was when my career really ended. Little did I know at the time because that's when I started to drink heavily. And I don't know whether it was my upbringing, I don't know whether it was the pressure, I don't know what it was, but I liked it. Because I, you know, I don't know about you, but I carried around this hole in my chest all my life. I never felt like I fit in, I wasn't right, I didn't have the right answers. When I had that first drink, that hole went away. And I felt like I fit in, I was funny, people liked me. And the next 20 years I drank at that. And little did I know, it ruined my career, and I wished I had someone that could have grabbed me by the arm at that time and said, hey, Cooney, come on, listen, now this is really important. Let's get a hold of yourself. Let's get in shape. You know, give me three more years. And, uh, and so hopefully going on, I'll be able to see one of those kids and tell them, listen, let's pay attention now. This is your life, and this is a great moment you're in here. You've made it this far. Let's take it all the way. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, who knows what happened. I think God also played a role in it because I think had I, had I beat Holmes that night, I probably, my life was so fast as it was, I probably wouldn't even be here with you today. I mean, I, that's how scary it was. I mean, it was a, it was a fast-paced life. It was great life. But, you know, I need to slow down and get off that fast track. And, uh, and I think losing to Holmes that night helped me to do that.
back then boxing was still the number one sport. It's kind of making a bit of a resurgence, but it was still it is, it is. still number one. And people were making the prediction that you'd be the first billion dollar athlete. Was that a lot of pressure as well? Listen, I had five or six guys I went to high school with. And when I was training, they would come out to training camp with me. So we were living the dream. I was telling the guy yesterday, I was eating turtle soup. I was having lobsters. You know what I mean? I mean, seafood bisque. I mean, and my buddies, too. We never had experienced anything like that. So I never paid attention to any of that stuff. I was living the dream. I was training in the camp someplace with my friends and doing what I have to do as best I could. And, and so, no, yeah, I never got caught up in that racism. Uh, uh, another big story with that is to tell you is that so I'm building this thing where race is coming up, white and black and all that stuff. And I got letters from the Ku Klux Klan. Holmes had his mailbox blown up. And, and so I'm thinking it's him. And I'm, I'm really angry. I'm angry, angry at this guy. And so during the, I'm, I'm, all I want to do is hit him with one solid left hook. That's how mad I was. I never felt that way. I always had the butterflies leading up to fights. This one had no butterflies. I just wanted to hit him with a hook. So I was angry, I was so angry. I get up in the ring in the Mills Lane, a great referee gave us instructions and Holmes looks at me and says, hey Jerry, let's have a good fight. What'd you say that for? <laughs> I was so mad at you, I wanted to give you, I wanted to give you a beating. Yeah. And so that kind of took it away and that's what boxing's about. It ain't about racism and prejudice and all that stuff. It's two men trying to get the prize, yeah. get the ring. Yeah, and just before the Holmes fight, like, there's a lot of politics in boxing now, but it was kind of coming to the fore a little bit then where Mike Weaver was the WBA champion. Was there ever any possibility that that was the fight you were going to pursue? Well, and Larry Holmes talks about it today. Had I fought Mike Weaver first and got that experience, I probably could have beat him. Okay. But I'm going to tell you right now, Larry Holmes was one of the best fighters in history. And he was so smart, so patient. He waited and he was cute. But I, yeah, I would have liked to fight Weaver because Weaver didn't take that well of a shot. Mm. And I could have uh, maybe got that belt and then uh, had taken that experience into the ring with me. See, really what I needed was I needed three or four more fights before the Holmes fight yeah. to gain that experience. And Don King owned all those guys and didn't want me to gain that experience because he, I wasn't signed to him. I was only signed to myself. Yeah. But that being said, my managers also didn't care about me fighting other guys because they wanted to make that big payday, yeah. unbeknownst to me. So they were trying to protect the payday. There was talk of Joe Bugner fight, but that just never... I trained with him. We had a great time with Joe Bugner. He was a good guy. He says you're the biggest puncher he was ever in with. He was a good guy. He was a good guy. Tough guy, too. Very awkward. Mm. And uh, I had great experience with him, too. I mean, you bring happy moments to me. And I want to tell you something. You give a great interview. Doing a great job, bro. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, just on Larry Holmes, I find him interesting because he's he's greatly respected now, but at the time it was post Ali, and he wasn't maybe as charismatic as Muhammad Ali. What was your perception of him before you fought? Because there was a little bit of bad blood, as you said, which was bubbled up because of the racial tensions that were being exaggerated, not by you or him, but more by the people around you. Man, I want to just say this about Larry Holmes. Like him and I are great friends today. And he grew up in the era of Muhammad Ali. He was a sparring partner. He watched Muhammad, the attention, the press, the people loved him. So he felt like when he got the title, that was going to be laid on him. Yeah. But Muhammad Ali was special. He was just this guy that was a gifted guy. I mean, I remember watching him walk down the, in an airport. He looked like he had a glow to him. 
And so then, you know, they start to pick Holmes apart. Everybody was, he wasn't good enough. He wasn't this, he wasn't that. And then I came along, and he wanted, he was fit to be tied at that time. Mm. And so he was angry. And I, I don't blame him. But, you know, like, I'm going to tell you the story, like with my family. I had a family I grew up with. Now, I became the athlete, and everybody, we come, we come from a very distinct functional family, and everybody would see my family say, hey, how's Jerry? How's Jerry? How's Jerry? How's Jerry? They get angry about that. What about them? And so that's what happened to Holmes. And so that's what we were hearing. But he was a great champion. He just couldn't accept how the people talked about him. Mm. And so, uh, and you know, he, he was long, one of the longest reigning champions in, of, of all time. So the climate at the time, it, it had been 23 years since there was a Caucasian heavyweight champion, so the media were kind of bigging that up, and the Great White Hope stuff oh, uh, came out with Don King, and it's fair to say you were uncomfortable with that whole side of the promotion. I didn't pay attention to it, because I had, I, I, I had five or six guys that we were living the dream when did you have turtle soup before? <laughs> you know, lobster, you know, lobster bisque. I mean, that was what, and we were training, running in the hills, working out, swimming. It was a, it was a life. Everybody loved us. I mean, how, how could you beat that? I'm not going to talk about the other stuff. I was, I was a young, immature kid who was trying to find my way th through life. So they were stoking those racial tensions and you were just kind of getting on with your game. Muhammad Ali said you were the great right hope, not the great white hope. Yeah, so. Yeah. He would have visited you in training camp. What was it like to meet him? Was he was he an inspiration for you? You know, we met a, a bunch of times, and uh, you know, I, I loved him so much too. He was just this gift. And I remember the first time I met him, I was 22. I just bought this nice home in the Hamptons. Now, you're here from Ireland. There's a big Irish community in Montauk Point. Do you ever hear that? No. Oh my God! You got to get out there with us. We got to go out there, and uh, and so. We had such a great time. He sat next to me, next to the UN. They had a boxing thing. And I said, you know, Muhammad, you got to come out to my house in the Hamptons. I thought, well, how great that would be. He said, all right, I will. So he put me in touch with a guy. But there were going to be 30 people out. And I'm 22. I can't even take care of myself. I'm going to take care of 22 <laughs> people. I wound up canceling it. Oh, no. What a sad story, right? Oh, no. But we've had a lot of fun. He called, used to call my mother, tell her I'm going to be okay. And he did take a trip to my... Uh, to my training camp in Palm Springs, California, and did say I wasn't the white hope, I was the right hope. And Larry Holmes was very mad about that, too, you know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of your profile, just for people who mightn't be aware, so you were in the lead-up to that Holmes fight, and he was the champion, but you were on the front of Sports Illustrated and Time magazine, and there was rumors that there was a phone in your dressing room for Ronald Reagan to call after the fight. Like, that must have been on some level, you must have been feeling the pressure that there was this big momentum building around you. You know what? I didn't feel, excuse me, I didn't feel any pressure about that stuff. I, the only pressure I felt was I had to fight the man. Yeah. I was going in with the man. Um, Ronald Reagan, I love Ronald Reagan. It was, a, it was a nice compliment that yeah. he had a phone in my room, which also angered Larry because there was no phone in his room. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and listen, here's boxing, right? So I signed to fight Larry Holmes, right? We're playing chess with each other. He's trying to irritate me. I'm trying to irritate him. So the night of the fight, I get the upper edge. Mm. So all those things that were going on was that little game we play, fighters play. It's like a game of chess before you, the bell rings. And then you just can't wait. I mean, I remember being in the, the most, I have a picture in my gym. I have a gym at home in Scotch Plains. Uh, there's a picture of me when you're in your dressing room and the door opens up and the guy says, Cooney, you're up. 
and you say, oh shit, now it's my turn. And so then you get, and this, you get this walk going from the dressing room out to the ring to fight. And all you want to do is you can't wait for the bell to ring, because yeah. then you're going to fight. But it's a very intense moment. And, uh, and I just came back with, I was with Scott, um, and, and I was around a lot of fighters, old-time fighters with him, and we all identify with that fight of life, that we struggle, it's hard, it's good, it's lonely. And you kind of like, kind of have this like camaraderie with everybody, like, because we've all been there, and it's a very hard game. Mm. And some of your critics just before that fight would have been saying, as you kind of pointed out yourself, that you might have been a little bit inactive. And part of that was because you were just knocking everybody out, so you probably weren't getting as much schooling as Larry Holmes, for example. So in the 13-month gap before you fought Holmes, he fought a couple of times, and he was, he was very active. So your tactics going into that fight, he was the boxer, you were the puncher. Was it just the same, get to his body and hopefully get him with a haymaker up top then? <laughs> You'd be a good trainer, but you'd yeah. be a good trainer. No, listen, so I, I couldn't get fights. So it was frustrating for me, and, and, and partly it was frustrating for me because the king was not allowing me to fight those guys, or that's to my knowledge. And the other part was that I didn't know at the time, my managers didn't want me to fight anybody because they wanted that big payday. So um, that night, from all the press, I couldn't go the distance, I can't go the distance. I was trying to go the distance. All right. So and you, so... You changed what got you there. Right. And little did I know... I needed to just come out and fight, and, uh, and, but that all being said, he was very smart. He told me I heard him sometimes in that fight. I never, you know, you, when you're fighting somebody, I'm watching every expression on your face, your body language, to read what's happening. He was smart. Poker face. He was unbelievable. And, you know, obviously he got away with it. He said one time he had to crawl back. He said, thank God I hit him at the end of the round because he had to hold the rope, go back to the corner. Yeah. And it was a huge commercial success, 150 countries, wow. uh, generated $40 million, wow. and by going 13 rounds you proved a lot to a lot of people, and like, it should have been the point where you built from, and that's, you've established yourself right. as a prime time heavyweight, right. and yet it was very much the opposite, it was kind of, your descent sort of started from right. there. Well, you know, the whole thing was I was sick of boxing. I was sick of my managers who couldn't stand each other. I felt like I was in the middle all the time. Uh, Don King was, a, you know, I was fighting once a year. It was just, the whole thing was a, such a mess. My family was at, everybody was at odds with each other. It was like, I was like in the middle of all of that. And, you know, there's a, the, HBO did a special on me um, back then. And one of the songs I asked them to play was by John Lennon. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I need to take a break, I need to get away and just kind of catch up with myself because from 18 to 25 when I fought Holmes went like that and I had to catch up with who I was. I didn't even know who I was anymore. It was uh, this person, but it wasn't, I didn't have no time about myself and I was sick of all that nonsense and realistically, looking back now, had they offered me a rematch with Holmes, I would have taken that fight with, and the experience I learned from the first fight I would have taken it into the second fight. Man, I'll tell you what, I would, I would have paid more attention that time, I'll tell you that. Mm. So um, it never happened. But today they have trilogies. Back then, we should have had a second fight. If the fight merited it, it was good enough fight, they didn't give it to us. So I don't know what that was about. He was pulling, he was so smart. Yeah. He was, as I was coming with the body shots, he was pulling my head down, which made the shot go low. Yeah. And Mills Lane couldn't see him pulling my head down. And I got three points taken away. 
Man, that was devastating to me, this inexperienced guy, because I felt like I, now I can't win. Because yeah. anytime you see someone get points taken away, they never win the fight. So it was like three points I had taken away from me. And he was pulling my head down. He was good. He was smart. And you've mentioned, what do you got to remind me about that for? Uh, you mentioned <laughs> Don King a couple of times. Did he ever try to sign you? Did you turn him down? Or what was it? Was it just that you weren't with him? That was the only reason? We wouldn't sign with him because he was... Uh, he controlled you, he told you what you gotta do, when you gotta do it, this and that. He made you wait. I mean, there's so many great fighters he had that they waited for years in the background. And so we were uh, against signing with him and that hurt me. But I think the other way hurt me as well. So I was stuck in the middle. I need to take the experience I have now and go back to fighting. And now I can do it the right way. Mm. I'm a little old for that now. Yeah, but I, I read a quote from you. You said, if I won that fight, I'd be dead now. You know, life was so fast for me. You know, that, that night, like you said, the president's phone was in my room. The owner of Caesar's Palace wanted to fly me to his daughter's graduation. I mean, it was just unbelievable what was going on. And from my upbringing, I didn't have that much of a structure to understand all that. And I think I, I could have ran with that, and it could have been devastating to me. Mm. I mean, it was devastating as it was, but I pulled myself up. I turned the page. I put down the, the alcohol in, in April 21st, 1988, and I started to understand and learn about me and the mistakes and the flaws I had and what made me cause these things, and I changed them. Yeah. And now it's like, wow, I can't believe I waited all that long. Yeah, and the, the Michael Spinks fight, which you did end up having, like it's probably someone in your prime you would have dealt with pretty easily, I think. Easy, baby, come on. I, I see him now, I want to fight him now. <laughs> I was so bad, waiting those two and a half years, on, off, on, off, on, off. I was so sick going into that ring. Mm. And I feel angry. I, I feel, I want to direct it towards him, but I'm angry at myself. Because that was the worst fight of my life. The worst fight of my life, that I allowed myself to go to those depths. And, uh, and I think, I was sick. It was, it's called a mental illness. I was sick. And I needed to check it, and I, and that fight, helped me, uh, that was uh, June 15th, 80, uh, 87, and April 21st, 1988 is when I put it down. So it was always working and I realized it's not working no more, I gotta get my stuff together. Mm. I remember waking up in this beautiful home in the Hamptons thinking to myself, wow, what happened to you? I was hung over at 20 minutes to 11. So I said, I'm gonna quit, I quit that day. Was that the eureka moment? Was it building to that point or did you just wake up one no, day? No, that, that was the day I woke up and I quit that day. And the next day I woke up at 20 minutes to 11 the same way. And then I got scared. And the desire to drink went away just like that. I cried out to God that morning. And I, I said, please, they gotta help me. And man, someone listened. And I, I stopped drinking. I, I don't wanna drink no more. Can you believe that? One day I drank every day, I had that, that uh, rising to myself, and I just stopped drinking, I didn't want to drink no more. And was that, was that what helped with AA, or was, did you go to rehab, or was it something you were no, able to no, overcome I just, yourself? I just, the desire to drink went away. I, I called somebody, I went to a rehab to, to talk to these people, yeah. and uh, they said, you don't have to stay here, take it on, treat it on yourself outside, and if you can't make it, we'll always, take care of you. And I was glad to hear that. I didn't want to go to no rehab. And I put it down. And I was uh, blessed to be able to stay on that road.
with the new clean living, you were able to build yourself back up. I couldn't do it myself. I, we need help. We need other people who have the same struggle, the same fight, and they kind of ease you through it. Make you understand what's going on and the troubles you're going to go through. And once the alcohol gets out of your system, the rawness is in there. And you have to deal with it. You've got to cope with it. You've got to learn how to feel again. You know, my, my life was either I was happy or I was angry. There was nothing in the middle. And life is all about the middle. And so I had to go process that and, and figure that out and write those feelings down and think about them and talk about them. And then it all comes out. Mm. And it built to that George Foreman fight. In some ways, was that sort of closure for you because you, you were clean living again and just by getting back in the ring and overcoming all those hurdles, that that was sort of, you could close the book on boxing and move on with your life? You know, it's really funny, but I had got into promoting. A, a buddy of mine sold me half of Roberto Duran's contract for $25,000. Roberto Duran guaranteed it was $15,000 going to get back. Duran wins that fight. He gets a shot at Davey Moore, wins the welterweight championship of the world. For $25,000, I got half of Duran's contract, and we set up the Duran-Leonard three. So in that period, I was promoting some fights, and Foreman made a comeback, and him, he's fighting, and we were putting on some of his fights. And so he came to him one time and said, you know, Jerry, why don't, you, uh, why don't we fight? And I thought to myself, well, I'm retired. I said, but you know, I never did this sober. I never did it clean. The money wasn't bad, so I went away to camp. I got in great shape, conditioned myself. I think I was just too, um, I wasn't long enough without a drink. I needed more time to understand myself more. I got in great shape, felt I was going to win, and uh, the bell rang. I got hit with a shot. I heard him. I mean, he told David Letterman that was the hardest guy to ever hit him. And... Uh, but he had he was fighting it one twice a week or something like that at that time, yeah. and I went out and I got caught with a shot and I and I lost that night. And but for the first time in my life, I was able to turn the page and close the door on being a fighter, an athlete. Yeah. And then my life took off. Then my life took off. I stayed alone for a while. I learned about. I went sailing. I played tennis. I did, you know, condition. I rode bikes. I did all these things in the process of being clean and then I learned who I was and then that was attracted to me. I met my beautiful wife and uh, we have three, two great kids together. I have a third child and it's been the greatest experience. I mean, I tell people all the time, stay with it. Don't give up on yourself. Keep, keep, keep walking the straight path and you will get there and you know, we have options. We don't know we have options. We have a lot of options and you got to keep those open. And you said after the foreman fight, it um, I realized then I didn't like fighting. Three months or four months before the actual fight, you signed a contract, I'm going to fight you, bro. You're going to get it. And all you're thinking about is for three or four months, i got to get in the ring and fight this guy. Yeah. And, you know, it did a lot. It did. Listen, boxing was great for me. I loved what it did for me. I made a lot of money. I met the greatest people in the world. Everything in my life I have today is through boxing. So I'm, I'm still in the fight game. I'm on Sirius XM Radio. I, I still love the game. I still train guys. And uh, so, man, I mean, nobody really likes to. Who wants to get in the ring and fight? I mean, I guess there are guys that like that. <laughs> I, you know, when the, I couldn't wait for the belt to ring because then I had a fight. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, boxing's been great to me. Boxing's a great sport. I'll always love it. I love following it now. I love... Uh, you know, doing the fight shows because it's been, been a dream for me. Mm. And when you did retire at 33 quite young, like other people, your peers would have fought late into their 30s, into their 40s. Why is it so difficult to walk away, do you think? Is, it, is that drug of like 
seeing all the fans and getting that acclaim, it's difficult to walk away from that? Well, you know, the thing, funny thing about it is that you can find, most guys don't become aware that it's not working anymore. Right. So they, they turn pro, they want to become a champion. Then they become a contender. Then they become an opponent. And then they become a sparring partner. Okay. And those shots you take during those back years, you can't change the ball joints in, the, in like in your car. You take those those shock absorbers wear out in your head, and you start taking shots that are makes you forget, makes you not be the man you are. Mm. So these guys got to get out sooner. They have to understand that you can't last that long. You just can't. Your body can't hold up that much, and and that's a been a great process. And fighters have a hard time because one of the main reasons is aside from the money is the roar of the crowd. Like, I love walking out of my dress room yeah. and having those fans cheer me. There was nothing better in the world than that. And all athletes have that. Yeah. And at some point in your life, it's going to go away. And we have to learn to accept that. Mm. And that's tough. It's a tough, uh, tough act. And because you escaped that punishment at the back end of your career, you were actually able to do some really good work after your boxing career. Like... The Fist Fighters Initiative, yeah. which was great for, as we've said there, helping boxers who've just retired. You know, to find a union for boxers is so difficult, I always thought, because the guys that need it don't have any money. Mm. How are they going to pay their dues? And so uh, I helped fighters uh, find their tracks back, you know, that mental, chemical problems, spousal problems, children's problems. Helped them kind of sort them out for a period of time so that they could, they could become job ready. Because it's hard after the fight game, and you're used to, you know, all this camaraderie and success. Now you're on your own trying to support a family, and you're catching a lot of flack from everybody. But, um, listen, we have to keep moving. And, and part of that process of me doing those things was to also help myself. Not only help my fellow fighters, but also to learn about myself and what I needed to do and where I wanted to go. So it's a, it's a we all help each other kind of thing. Mm. And you've become known in pop culture. I think you're probably the first person we've ever had in studio that appeared on The Simpsons. <laughs> can you, oh, can you tell great. us a bit about that experience? How did that come about? You know, it's so much fun. I got the phone call, and they asked me if I'd come out to California. So at the time, I wasn't married, but I brought my, my, my then-girlfriend now, who's my wife now. And we went out to spend a week out there and did a lot of voiceovers. It was a lot of fun. Met the whole cast and crew. I got my poster signed by everybody. And uh, we had a terrific time, and I didn't know exactly how it was going to cut up. And I became, you know, uh, the guy at the, the casino that opened yeah. up, and I was the greeter. And, uh, you know, the, 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 old is, the rest is all history. Yeah. I get hit on the chin. But it was a great time. I, you know, listen, who gets to be on The Simpsons? My wife said, you know what? When you make it on The Simpsons, you yeah. made it. You really have made it, yeah. <laughs> and I can't let you go without just a quick word on the current heavyweights. You mentioned you met Dillian White, who's kind of assumed your role as the number one contender, and he's waiting to get his shot, and he's got a great left hook of his own. Was it good to wow. meet him? Was he, a, was he a nice guy? Well, you know, he and I have been kind of talking. He's been on my show a couple of times. Right. Uh, Instagram, we follow each other. and So, yeah, he's kind of been the guy that Eddie Hearn has kind of used to put in with Park, all these other guys, to test them out. Yeah. And he stood up great. And then now it's his turn. He's, he's, the, guy, he's the guy who most gained the most experience over the last couple of years, fighting everybody. And now he's sitting in the background waiting. So I kind of feel his frustration. He's in great shape. I was up at his training camp. He looks terrific. 
And uh, so he's going to, there's a lot of great fights for him out there. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised what happened to Joshua. Uh, I'm glad Ruiz did it. What did you think of that fight? Well, I picked Joshua to win late. But I said that, listen, this guy Ruiz is a tough kid. He, he lost a split decision to, uh, to Parker. And, and he's going to test Joshua. And we're going to find out a lot about Joshua in this fight. And we did. He got knocked out. But Joshua also has been the guy who's also said that, listen, we all can't win them all. We're going to lose sometimes. So we're going to see if he can come back. And I believe he needs to change his, his training camp. He needs to find a good teacher to teach him some more skills. I mean, you, gotta, you can't stand straight up and fight with a guy who's throwing 10, 15 punches at a clip like Ruiz is. So I think he's going to take the fight with Ruiz right away. And I'm hoping he can get out of the way a little more and work his body. When, and when Ruiz wants to punch, grab a hold of him. Throw your punches and hold them. There's a lot of things he can do. Uh, Wilder is a, always a beast. If he hits you with that right hand, you're going to go to sleep. Uh, I, think, I think right now Fury's the best guy in the heavyweight division. He got dropped by uh, Wilder. The referee, Jack Reese, is a friend of mine. He said he got to five. And Fury op opened his eyes up and jumped off the canvas. And then he fought back and he hurt Wilder twice in that round. Yeah. Which I thought, he, I thought he won that fight. But yeah. we remember before that fight, there was people doubting why Fury was taking it because he had been some, through some demons oh himself. Oh, my goodness. And he, he jumped in with the biggest puncher in the division. But you said a really pressing thing before that fight. You said Fury didn't pick Wilder for no reason. Fury asked for Wilder. Nobody yeah. wanted to fight Wilder. Yeah. F Fury puts on 150 pounds. He goes on this run going crazy. First thing he comes back, he says, I want to fight Wilder. That's a big man right there, and I'm proud of him for doing that. And he stood up, and he did a great job. And I'm surprised that the second fight didn't take place. Mm. And I think now that Bob Barham saw what happened to Joshua, he's going to let Fury and Wilder fight again so he can make that money. There's big money to be made there. If one of those guys loses, it's all over. Mm. I mean, look at Joshua. He's got a big setback. I don't think he's going to definitely devastate him, but he needs to get someone to teach him to fight a little more how to get out of his head out of the way, come inside close, don't punch from so far out. There's a lot of things he, can, he needs that he got by winning the championship so early in his, life, in his career, he didn't get to learn those things. Mm. And as you said, we're going to box later, but are you still putting the gloves on? Getting close. I've seen you, you've done some fundraisers. And oh, yeah. You've opened that Scotch Plains Academy, which uh, Larry Holmes came down to help you with, I should say. So you're still helping at the next generation? You know what? I'm, uh, my, my daughter's a... I taught my, my kids how to fight. My daughter's fantastic. My son is a fantastic boxer. I don't want them to fight. But my daughter teaches classes. She makes a nice little uh, money doing that. She's 18 years old. Uh, I teach kids. I teach adults. Listen, there's nothing like coming to a gym learning about yourself through boxing. The exercise, the hitting the bags, the learning how to balance yourself. It's a win-win it's a situation. People walk out of my gym six inches off the ground. And then I'm also developing pros. So that's another area I'm in, and it's, it's kind of hard juggling all those things. My book is out, Gentleman Jerry, a contender entering a champion in recovery. Um, we're working on a, a series, a television series, a, a movie, a lot of things going on, which I'm very excited about. And, uh, and I'm glad I'm out here to do it. I'm, I'm glad I can still talk about it. I, I love to be with people, so it's right up my alley. Mm. And it's great to have you. Just one last word. Like, what would your advice be to the next generation of boxers if you could give them one nugget of advice for pursuing their careers? The first thing you've got to teach the kids is defense. You've got to teach them to be safe. 
punch from a safe place. Come in, get get inside, get back out again. Don't stand in front of the guy. You got to keep getting off to the side. You got to take yourself away, and you got to be in shape. You got to you got to get in shape. You got to get your stamina up. And listen, it's a great game for your whole life, for your kids, for your grandkids. And I'm blessed to be able to have this in my life, and it's opened the door for me for so many other things. That's uh, so unbelievably great. And hopefully the next uh, Jerry Kenny's not too far away. You've been hey. so good with your time. It's been great to have Listen, you. Listen, you, it's been great being with you. Gentlemen, Jerry Kenny, thanks for coming in. Thank you.